0: You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, as we continue walking through this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 5 here in just a second. Um, those of you who are... Parents, or just those of you who who grew up uh, in a a household, know that children like to imitate their parents, and and kids like to try to imitate their dads. When I was uh, little, I have a twin brother, Nathan, and so we were the oldest boys in our family, and we wanted to be just like our dad, and so we would, we had plastic mowers that we would go alongside of him when he was mowing the grass, or uh, one thing that we did was he, my dad was uh, a, for extra money, would referee games, like church league basketball games, which was an interesting thing in and of itself. But uh, so, so somebody made, uh, somebody at the church that my dad worked at made us referee outfits. We're like four years old. We have these, these referee out, outfits. We have whistles that they took the, the thing out so we couldn't actually make any noise with it. Uh, and so we would, we would go to these games that my dad was refing, and we're like four years old. And one time we're at this game, we're in our referee outfits. The ball comes off the court, hits my brother, Nathan, knocks him off the bleachers he's on the ground crying and my dad comes over and says hey get up tough it out stop crying and then puts him back on the on the bleachers and so he was he was a he was a stern man uh, but but he's uh, our hero and so we wanted to be like him we wanted to imitate him my my children do the exact same thing and i don't know if it's a, it's always a good thing or or a bad thing but my kids want to be like me judson our youngest uh, boy when Uh, We're out. He plays baseball. Coach pitch. We're out at the field. Uh, I'll spit sometimes, and then what do you think Judson does right after I spit? He he spits too because he thinks that that's what you're supposed to do because he's trying to be like his dad. My oldest daughter Maddie, when she was little, one time walk in uh, the bathroom. She's in the bathtub. We're giving her a bath, and she I'm a pastor, and and so she uh, has her little Cinderella doll that she's playing with in the bathtub, and she says Cinderella. Do you believe in God? Yes, I do. Well, then I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And she baptizes Cinderella in the bathtub and, and brings her back up. I was, a couple years ago, I was told that uh, my, our middle daughter, Emma, was in uh, children's church, was not in the, the, the big service. And so that day we were doing the Lord's Supper. And so the deacons took the Lord's Supper back to children's church for those kids who, who were there who were believers. And so they passed out the bread and the, and the cup. And Emma said, hey, can I, can I lead the Lord's Supper? Uh, and so she, just like me, she said, uh, Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me and led all the kids in uh, taking the, uh, the Lord's Supper. Because kids imitate their, their parents. And what Paul is going to tell us here in Ephesians chapter 5 is that those of us who are Christians, those of us who are followers of Christ— that the, the goal, the, the mission, the purpose of the Christian life is to imitate your heavenly father, to try to be like him, to imitate his, his character, his holiness. That's something that we should want to do. That's something that we should strive for is to, to be like our father in heaven. The question that we need to ask ourselves is if you don't want to be like God, if you don't want to be like your heavenly father, then what does that say about you? What does that say about your relationship with the Lord? Now, here's the challenge for us when it comes to trying to imitate our Father who is in heaven. As we've talked about through this series in Ephesians, as Pastor Trent uh, told us weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 1, that the Bible says that that salvation, being being born again, given eternal life, going to heaven when you die, being brought into the family of God, is like adoption, that God has has chosen us. He has adopted us into His family. That's what Paul said in chapter 1 of Ephesians. And adoption is an interesting illustration to talk about the way that God has loved us and the way that God has saved us and brought us into His family. And it helps us understand the tension that we're feeling here in Ephesians chapter five, because one of the things that that uh, adoption ad- adopted kids uh, a challenge that they have is when they're brought into a family is is living in according in accordance with that new identity. For example, my uh, I have a friend of mine who um, he and his wife adopted a boy. Uh, from South Africa, uh, his name's Haddon, and they, they brought Haddon into their family, and Haddon is was nine years old when they adopted him, and so he had lived in an orphanage for a really long time. And one of the things that the challenges that they had when when Haddon came into their family was that he he never wanted to drink refrigerated milk. He only wanted to drink boxed, unrefrigerated, nasty milk. And the reason why he wanted to do that, is because that's all that he knew. That's what he grew up with. That's all that they had in the orphanage. And so he was he was reverting back to his life before he was brought into this new family. He was he was kind of going back to what was familiar to him, what was something that he had grown up with, rather than living in accordance with his new identity in his family. And that's the challenge that we have in the Christian life. We have been adopted into God's family. We once were children of disobedience who were under wrath, as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. But now we've been brought into God's family. We've been adopted, and He loves us, and He's saved us. And yet... We want to revert back to often our old way of life and what we were like before we were saved and what we were like before we had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we have a difficulty living in accordance with our new identity in Christ. Just like an adopted child who's brought out of an orphanage into a family and wants to go back to things that are lesser things and things that are not as good as what they have now, but that's familiar to them. The same thing with us. We want to go back to what is familiar to us. We want to go back to what we are used to rather than living out this new identity that we have in Christ. And that's what the Christian life is, learning to let go of the old life, to leave it behind and to live in accordance with this new identity that we have in Christ, because it's better. C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that we as, as children, the problem is so often we think that the Christian life is saying no to our desires, right? And then saying yes to God and and, and saying no to joy and and then saying yes to God. And that's what many people think the Christian life is. But C.S. Lewis tells us, no, the problem is that our desires are too low. They're too small. We don't desire the the things that are going to really truly bring us lasting pleasure and lasting joy. He says we're like children who are content making mud pies in the slums when we don't know and we don't recognize that there's a a, a vacation at the beach that God has for us. No, we want to stay in the slums and we want to make these mud pies. And yet there's a feast and there's a vacation at the beach that God offers to us if we'll just take it. And that's what the Christian life is, is letting go of those lesser joys, lesser desires, and saying yes to those greater joys and those greater desires that we have in Christ and learning to live out that new identity. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 has told us we are free when we've been saved and we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are free from the penalty of sin. We're not going to go to hell. We're not under the judgment of God. But now we need to work at being free from the power of sin in our lives. And that's what, he, what Paul turns to in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5. Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus from jail He's in prison, and he writes this letter, and what we have to recognize is he's making one long argument. Oftentimes, we get fooled by the way our Bible set up now with these chapters and these verse divisions, and we think that Paul's kind of... It's kind of like watching a Netflix series, right? That you, got, you got one episode, and it's on, a, it's on one topic, and you watch it, and then you can decide whether you want to go on to the next episode and, and see what that's about, and then there's another episode after that, and so it's just kind of broken up, and that's the way that we oftentimes approach the Bible, but when Paul wrote this, there, there wasn't chapters, there wasn't verse divisions. He's writing one long letter, like you would write a letter to a friend or an email to somebody, and they would read it in one sitting. They wouldn't read half of the email and then walk away and come back next week and read the rest of the email. No, you would read it in one sitting because Paul is making one argument. He's making one sustained argument. It's, hey, you've been made new. You've been adopted into the family of God, chapters one through three. Now, here's how you live practically in your daily life, chapters four through six. And that's where we are now. Paul's explaining to us, since we've been adopted, since we have been saved by his grace, not by our good works, Now, in light of that, here's how we live. And that's what he gets to here in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. So let me read this to you, and then let's walk through what it means for us. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of His Word. Five things I want us to see in this passage this morning as we, as we think about the fact that we need to be imitators of God. So when I want to ask the question, how do we become like God? Again, not like God in everything. We can't create the world out of nothing, and we, we, we can't you know, perform uh, you know, miracles, raising people from the dead, but, but how do we become like God? How do we imitate God when it comes to His character, to His holiness? There's five things that Paul tells us here in Ephesians chapter 5. Number one, believing the gospel drives holy living. Believing the gospel drives holy living. There's too many people, both Christian people and non-Christian people, no matter who, where you are in this room this morning, if you have a relationship with Christ or you don't have a relationship with Christ, too many people reduce the Christian life to simply be good, do good, do good works, and avoid bad works. Or uh, kind of, if you're a Christian... Pray a prayer to ask Jesus into your heart, and and get saved, and make sure you're going to heaven when you die. And then you leave the gospel behind. You leave behind the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and you move on to trying to be a good person, trying to be a good Christian, and following the rules and and listening to the do's and don'ts. That's what so many people think that the Christian life is. Many people think that the Christian life is the equivalent, I like to say, of um, an Oompa Loompa song in Willy Wonka and the, and the Chocolate Factory. You know what I'm talking about? If you saw Willy Wonka, and I'm talking about like the, the Gene Wilder one, okay? The, 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 the good one, all right? Before Johnny Depp ruined it. Uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, when the children would misbehave and, and get, you know, sucked off into the incinerator or whatever, uh, these Oompa Loompas would come out, right? These, these short, round, orange guys would come out, and they would sing a song, and the song would be about how you're supposed to live life, right? And they'd say, what, what do you get if your kid is a brat, you know, pampered and spoiled like a Siamese cat? And who do you blame? Do you blame the child? No, you, you blame the mother and the father. And then at the end, after they've, they've diagnosed some bad behavior that these kids did that you're not supposed to do, they say, now listen to us. If you want to live a life of wisdom, if you want to live a life of happiness, listen to the Oompa Loompas, because we're telling you how life works. And that's what many people think the Christian life is, is doing the good behaviors, avoiding the bad behaviors, and that's what it means to be a Christian. And so because of that, so many people think that the Christian life is, I need to obey God in order to be accepted by God. I need to obey God in order for God to love me. And that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is actually the reverse of that. I'm accepted by God in Christ, therefore I obey Him. I'm loved by God in Christ, therefore I obey him. So so many people think the gospel, that the death and resurrection of Jesus that saves us from our sins is just a hoop that you jump through to get into the Christian life. And then the rest of the Christian life, maturity is learning to follow the rules. But that's not at all what the Bible tells us. It doesn't tell us, clean up your life so that God will love you. It says, no, no, God loves you and that's gonna change your life. That's going to radically transform your life. The gospel, as Tim Keller has said, is not the ABCs. It's not the elementary things of the Christian life. It's the A to Z. Everything in the Christian life boils down to the gospel. It's not, okay, I prayed a prayer. Now let me clean my life up. No, it's not white knuckled kind of grit, determination. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to be a good Christian. That's not what the Christian life is. The gospel, the good news that Jesus has died for you, and has been raised from the dead, is what transforms your behavior, is what causes you to become holy like God. If you read the Bible, all of the commands of the Bible are based on the foundation for all the commands that God gives us, is the good news that God has rescued us. If you go all the way back to Exodus, where we we get the first list of rules that we're really familiar with, the Ten Commandments, we think the the Ten Commandments is just do this, don't do this. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. But the Ten Commandments doesn't start with a list of rules. The Ten Commandments starts with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one who rescued you. Now, here's how you're supposed to live as rescued people. That's the exact same thing we see here in Ephesians. Paul spent three chapters explaining to us, you have been saved by grace. This is not of yourselves. It's not of works. It's a gift that God has given you. Now, you are created by God to to do good works, but after He's already saved you, after He has already redeemed you. That's what we see throughout the Bible, That the Ten Commandments. Rules don't start with, you do this. They always start with, I've done this for you. Now, here's how you're supposed to live. That's exactly what we see here. We live as God's children in the world, imitating Him, not so that he'll save us, but because he has already saved us. Think about this. Uh, as Andy Stanley used this in illustration years ago, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a helpful point. I don't go around, as a, as a dad, I don't go around giving rules to other people's children, right? Like whatever rules we have uh, in, in my household, like like for our, our children, for Emma, for example, uh, we don't allow her to have Coke after after about 5 p.m. because it, she'll have trouble sleeping uh, if she has caffeine after 5 p.m. But I don't, I don't run around to other people's children and say, nope, you're not allowed to have Coke after five. Okay, I, that would be crazy, right, for me to, to do that. The reason I do it with Emma is because she's my child and because I love her and I want what's best for her. And that's the same thing that God has, has done for us. Because we are his children, he tells us how we're supposed to live and how we're to imitate him in the world because he wants what is best for us. Here's the thing. When I was growing up, I didn't want to please my parents so that they would love me. I wanted to please my parents because they love me. And that's the exact same thing with God. We don't, we don't want to please him so that he'll love us. We, we want to please him because he, he does love us. And so God gives us these commands for holy living because he, he wants what's best for us, and he wants us to show the world what he's like. And if you're not growing in this, it's not about effort. It's not because you're just being a bad Christian. It's about some, in some way you're failing to believe the gospel. This new life that we're supposed to live, all holy living is driven by the gospel. He, he starts here in verses 1 and 2 in talking about our love for one another. Our love for one another. Now, this is in the church. He's going to go on next week. Pastor Trent's going to deal with this. Talk about the same thing in marriage. And he uses the exact same motivation. How do we love each other in the church? How do you love each other in marriage? How do you love each other in your family? The exact same motivation is given here at the beginning of the chapter, as you'll give at the end of the chapter. As Christ has loved you. As Christ gave himself up for you. Christ's sacrificial love for you is the motivation, is the driver that allows you to display sacrificial love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, for your husband, for your wife. It is the love that Christ has for us that we then have for others. He says this, this loving sacrifice that Christ has made for us is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. In the Old Testament, when they would make sacrifices, they would then burn the sacrifice on the altar, and there would be an aroma, a, a, an incense that would go up to heaven as, as a, as a f- fragrant aroma that God would, would, would smell and then accept the sacrifice. And he uses that same image here, that Christ's sacrifice was that pleasing offering to God. And what he's telling us is that our love for one another should mirror that. We said in the, the last series, the, the human to be human is to, to worship. And so part of our worship is not just gathering in here and singing on Sunday mornings. It's the way we love each other. And when you love a brother and sister in Christ, when you tangibly serve them and sacrifice your own time and gifts and resources to serve them, you are performing an act of worship that is pleasing to God. So what he says, and so we are called to love each other and the basis for that love, the, the basis for caring for orphans, the basis for taking care of widows, the, the basis for showing hospitality to one another, the, the basis for loving people in this church, in your church family that, that, that may rub you the wrong way or that may be a little annoying to you, the basis for doing away, as he said in chapter two, for doing away with racism and your prejudice towards other people is The way that Christ has loved you and the way that he has given himself for you. This is the exact same argument he makes at the end of chapter 4. He bases holy living in the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 and following. He says this, he gives, and just see here, he gives a negative, sinful behavior that you're supposed to repent of as living out this new identity in Christ And in its place puts a positive, a holy behavior that we are to display. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so they may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth living a holy life, is what Christ has done for you. And again, we see this kind of golden rule of the way we're supposed to treat other people. And the golden rule is very, it's important to know the exact way that it is framed in the Bible. The golden rule is not, don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to you. That's a negative way to put it. The golden rule is positively do for other people what you would want them to do for you. And we see this is the way that Christ has treated us and the way that we are to treat one another. Belief in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus, is the motivation that moves us from sin to holiness. He talks about putting on this, this new life, this new man in Christ. And so he says, stop lying and tell the truth to one another. Stop being stingy and be generous to those who are in need. Again, this is motivated by the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that that Christ Jesus, who was rich, became poor for us so that we in him might become rich. To the degree that you believe that, to the degree that that's good news for you, you will give away your riches to enrich other people. And you will be a generous kind of person. To the degree that you recognize Christ gave up what he had in order to bless me, you will then give up what you have and hold it loosely to bless other people. He says there at the end of the, at the, the passage there in chapter 4, he says, listen, you forgive one another because Christ has forgiven you. When you fail to forgive a brother or sister in Christ, when you hold a grudge against somebody who is a, a fellow believer in Christ— what you're saying, again, it's not just you're being a bad Christian. It's not just, this, you know, lack of effort. What you're saying is, I don't really believe the gospel. Because you're saying the cross of Jesus Christ is enough to forgive you for the sins that you've committed against God, but it's not enough to forgive the sins committed against you. So you're holding people to a higher standard than Christ has held you in the cross, and so if you really believe the gospel, you really believe that the cross of Jesus Christ is enough to forgive all sin, then it's enough to forgive the sins that have been committed against you. And so you won't hold that against the people who have hurt you. And so if you want to live a holy life, go back to the gospel. Believe, love, cherish, be satisfied in what Christ has done for you, and then you're going to love and be kind to and speak the truth to and forgive those around you. And so let the gospel be the motivation. Believing the gospel drives holy living. Number two, how do we become like God? Let go of your idols. Let go of your idols. This is kind of the flip side of, of the, the first point, okay? Holiness is driven by the, the, believing the good news that Jesus died and was raised from the dead, Sin is driven by the opposite, believing in worshiping idols. Now, again, when I say worshiping idols, I think we have this this mentality that that's something that people do in other countries where they have golden statues and they burn incense and idolatry is not really a, a problem for us. But when the Bible talks about idolatry, it's not just talking about physical statues that you worship. It's talking about anything that you find your satisfaction in, anything that you That you find your joy, your ultimate joy in, that's not God. And it can even be a good thing, but it's not God. And so when you put it in God's place, it becomes a bad thing. Anything, a person or a thing that you find your joy in, that you find your satisfaction in, that is not God, that is idolatry and that leads you to unholy living. Okay, as we said in in the series, to be human is to worship, all humans worship not all humans worship rightly. And that's true of all of us. And when we we get that vertical relationship with the Lord off, it then affects our horizontal relationships with other people. And he he mentions some of those ways here in verses three and following. He says, "...but sexual morality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints." Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. Our sin, our unholy living is driven by idolatry. And He, he names several here, sexual immorality, which is the Greek word porneia. We get our word, English word porn, pornography from it. When, when Paul references sexual immorality and purity, he's talking about any sexual sin, okay? Any sexual activity that is outside the, the bounds of heterosexual marriage. So it could be looking at pornography, it could be fooling around with your boyfriend, and girlfriend, it could be adultery, it could be any number of things, okay? But any sexual activity outside heterosexual marriage is. Pornea is sexual immorality, and it's something that he says it should not even be named among you. He moves on. He talks about greed, covetousness, which is idolatry. One of the problems we have in America is is that like greed is just the air that we breathe. Wanting more than what we have is just the air that we breathe. And so because it is, none of us thinks that we're greedy. None of us thinks that we're the, you know, coveting types of people. We think that's something that really rich people may struggle with, but we're not, we're not rich, and so we don't struggle with that. And yet, I think if all of us in this room were to be honest, we'd say, yeah, there, we want more than we have, and we look around at what other people have, and we want it. We are covetous, and the reason why we're covetous is because we are idolaters, because we're not satisfied in what God has given us. We're driven by Idolatry. Again, our gods aren't statues, they're they're money, their possessions, their power, their self, their pleasure, politics, sports. Those are the things that we find our identity wrapped up in. We find our satisfaction in. Martin Luther said about the Ten Commandments he said, The reason why we break commandments two through ten is because ultimately we have broken the first commandment. The reason we break the other commandments is is because we break the first. Every sin at root is a worship problem. We worship pleasure, so we commit sexual immorality. We worship possessions, so we're greedy. We worship people's approval, so we lie. or We tell dirty jokes. We worship something or someone other than God, and so we end up in unholiness and in sin. If you need confirmation— that sex is a God in our culture to just listen to our songs or watch our shows. You have songs like, uh, God is a woman, okay? talking about sex. You have songs like, Take Me to Church, where the, the author of that song is talking about an encounter that he has with, a sexual encounter that he has with somebody else. If you need confirmation that money is our God, again, listen to our songs, even our country songs, even our country songs that mention God, right? You know, I, I hear money is the root of all evil. I'm sure that's probably true, but it can buy me a boat, right? And it can buy me a truck to pull it. Uh, and so if you need confirmation, just, just look around. We worship all kinds of things other than God, and it leads to disobedience. It's because we, we don't believe that God is good. We don't believe that He wants what's best for us. We don't really believe that He loves us. And so we want to go back To the orphanage. We want to go back to the life that we had before rather than living the good life that God has for us. And so in order for us to become like God, we have to identify what are those things that we're finding our satisfaction in? What are those idols that we are worshiping? What is the root cause of our our sexual morality, the root cause of our greed, the root cause of our lies? And get rid of them and recognize Christ is better Christ is better than all of those things. If the, the root cause of your lying is that you, you you deceive so that other people accept you because the truth would make them not accept you. If that's the root cause of your idolatry, of your of your deception, then, then recognize, listen, you have the approval of God in Christ. What's more important than that? And so get rid of that desire to have everybody else like you. God loves you, and that's enough. If your idol is pleasure, Psalm 16 says, at the right hand of God, there is pleasure forevermore. It's pleasure that lasts forever, not just for a few minutes. And that's better than some temporary feeling. Whatever your idol is, identify it and get rid of it because it will let you down. Money will ultimately let you down. It will go away, but Christ won't. And so love him, find your satisfaction In him. Paul says that one of the ways that we are to combat this, he says, is instead, verse four, let there be thanksgiving. Be grateful to God for what you have, okay? Instead of of pornography, of thinking about somebody else who's not your wife or not your husband, some romance novel, be grateful for the spouse that God has given you and enjoy them in marriage. Instead of wanting more stuff than what you have, Be aware of how blessed you are to have the things that you have and be grateful for them. So be grateful for what God has given you rather than looking for something else. So let go of your idols. Number three, how do we become like God? Paul says, be warned by judgment. Be warned by judgment. He says there in verse five, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure is covetous that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience there will be a judgment God is warning us of this now we we see we may not read them but we get warning labels and warning signs all the time some of them are are, are actually funny uh, and they're, they're they're really funny but the reason why they're on there, you're like, why is in the world? It's like only a stupid person would do that. Why do they put that on my hairdryer? Well, because a stupid person did that, right? And so they're warning you not to do it. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen on your iron where it, or on a shirt that has the, the ironing instructions where it says, do not iron while wearing, okay? And um, it's good advice, right? And, and why do they have to put that on there? Because somebody tried to iron their shirt while they were wearing it and burned themselves, okay? You have uh, on, on mouse poison where it says, you know, caution known to cause cancer in laboratory rats, okay, so don't eat it, right? And why do they have to put that on there? Because people are dumb and they do dumb things. There are drills that have warning labels that say uh, for, not for dental work, okay? Now, um, I don't know who did that, but somebody did. And so they have to put that warning label on, on drills. Why? To, to keep you from stupid behavior. And that's the exact same thing God does here to, to get you to avoid these behaviors that are destructive, sexual immorality, impurity, et cetera, and to, to move towards holiness. He warns you about judgment. This is the exact same strategy that God uses throughout the Bible. Again, get into these, these questions that people have. Okay. I thought, John, I thought once saved, always saved. I thought if I became a Christian, then there's nothing I can do to lose my salvation. And, and that's, that's true, but I, I wouldn't say that the Bible teaches once saved, always saved. I would say the Bible teaches if saved, always saved. If you're truly saved, then you'll always be saved. But if you're living this kind of life and you're not fighting against your sin, then what guarantee do you have? What assurance do you have that you're actually saved? And that's what Paul is getting at here. God, yes, Jesus says in John chapter 10, right, that, that the father knows his sheep and he, he holds his sheep and nobody can pluck the sheep out of his hand. Nobody can, can cause you to become unsaved or to lose your eternal life. But one of the means by which God keeps his children saved is warnings and those who heed the warnings give evidence that they are truly saved. That's one of the ways that God keeps us. He he warns us. Listen, if you you want to give evidence, if you want to have assurance, he says there in verse 5, be sure of this, that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so, he warns us, the means by which he keeps us saved, the the way that we give evidence that we are saved is heeding the warnings, being fearful that if I continue to walk down this path, it means I'll miss out on the kingdom. It means I'll I'll miss out on the inheritance. And so, heed the warning and fight against your sin. That's what's going on here. He's not calling for perfection. He's not saying you got to be perfect. But he's saying, this cannot be the habit of your life. You have to fight against sin. He's, again, he's not saying if you, if you occasionally fall into this, that, that somehow you're going to go to hell when you die. He's saying, but if you persist in this, if you're not struggling against it, then, then you have no reason to be assured that you are saved. And so be warned by judgment. Again, don't, don't fear him. Who can just you know destroy your body? But fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell is what Jesus says. And and to be so afraid of judgment that if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better to go and Jesus says it's better to go into life with one eye than to go into hell with two eyes. And so be warned by the judgment and walk away from your old life. Number four. How do we become like God? Expose the darkness. Expose the darkness. He says there in verse 7, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Look down in verse 12. He, he's, verse 11, he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, here's, here's what he's saying, okay? As those who've been brought, again from old life, darkness, into light, We're not to participate with those who are still in darkness. Now, he's not saying don't associate with unbelievers. He's not saying don't spend time with, develop relationships with those who are unbelievers. He's saying, but don't join them in the things that they are doing. Instead, and again, moves to the positive. Don't join them in what they're doing. Instead, our role is to expose what they're doing so they can be brought into the light. Now, that means that by our our words, confrontation, speaking to people who are in sin, who are lost, who are apart from God, and and confronting them with their sin and and telling them the good news of Jesus, also means by our good deeds that we should be shining light on deeds that are not uh, good deeds, that are darkness. So we should be exposing the darkness with our words and with our deeds. Now, It's a really interesting time in America because I I know that the thought of exposing other people's evil deeds is not in keeping with our kind of politically correct culture. And there's this really weird thing that we have happening right now in our culture, and you can just just watch it on the news, the confirmation hearings, all these different things. We have, at the same time, don't judge me, you can't judge me for what I do, and— Publicly shaming anybody who's done anything wrong into submission, or into unemployment, and so you have these both like you can't judge me, and yet we're gonna just shame into this mob is gonna come after and shame into submission anybody who's done anything in their past, and and what we have is something so much better than that. We're exposing, we're exposing wrongdoing not for the purpose of shaming people into submission, but for the purpose of showing them, listen, no matter what you have done, Jesus loves you and he gave his life for you. And so we're exposing for the purpose of building up and to and bringing them to Christ rather than shaming them into condemnation. And so we need to expose the darkness. And then, then lastly, number five, we need to walk in wisdom under the Spirit's influence. We need to walk in wisdom under the Spirit's influence. He tells us not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and to to follow the Lord's will. And what he means by that, what it means to be wise, what it means to walk under the inspiration and the the influence of the Spirit, is is simply to to do what God has laid out for you to do in the Scriptures. Okay, there's a lot of talk among Christians about finding the will of God, you know, will, will of of God for my life? What does God want for my life? And and that that may be an important question to ask when it comes to things like who to marry or job, those kinds of things. But we know, like we know right now, hundreds of things that God wants us to do. Hundreds of things that God has clearly laid out in the Bible that is His will for our life. And we just need to follow it. We need to avoid, as he says, avoid sexual immorality, avoid greed, avoid coarse joking. And we need to embrace loving one another and forgiving one another and speaking the truth to one another. This is what he has revealed to us. And so we're just to, we need to walk in it under the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so he says there at the end here, in verses 18 and 19, that one of the things that this means is, is, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Do you realize that when we come together and we worship, we're singing these songs, that it's not just the Lord that we're singing to, but we're actually singing to one another. That's why it's important that you participate. It's important that you sing when we worship the Lord together, because the people around you need to hear these words. They need to be reminded of that our, our debt has been paid and that we're free in Christ, and that he's been raised from the dead, and all these things that we've, we've sung this morning, we need to be reminding each other. It's not just that we're singing to God. We're singing to one another, and we need to encourage one another in the way that we sing. He, he says in verse 20 that we need to always give thanks. That's what it means. To, a spirit-filled life doesn't mean, you know, that you necessarily speak in tongues or get goosebumps when you worship or have a really long quiet time. A spirit-filled life means that you're a thankful person, that you're, as he's going to say later, a good husband, good wife, good parent, good child. That's what it means to live a spirit-filled life, is to, is to be the kind of person that God is, is forming you and, and changing you to be. And so, let's imitate our Father who is in heaven. When it comes to imitating your dad, I don't know what your circumstance is in this room, you may be here this morning and you think, man, I, I have a great relationship with my dad, and my, my dad is one of my heroes, and that, that's true for me. And so if that if that's true about you, if you had a great dad, that there's a heavenly father who's even better than your earthly dad, that your earthly dad pointed you to, but he's even better, and he can make you like him. And so imitate him. Maybe you're here and you have a terrible relationship with your father. And when you think about imitating your dad, that's not something that brings you joy, but it's something that brings you pain. But there's a father in heaven who goes after orphans and goes after those who feel rejected and who feel abandoned. And he wants to be your dad and he wants you to to be like him. And so wherever you are in this room this morning, there is a father in heaven who loves you, who will never forsake you, and who wants to make you just like him. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to pray and then go into a time of worshiping the Lord together. So I just want to tell you, no matter where you are in this room today, if you're not a believer in Christ, you don't know for sure whether or not you're in God's family, you can become a child of God today. And all it takes is to just confess your sin to the Lord and to cry out to Jesus to save you based on his death and resurrection and he will or if you're here today and you are a believer but you say man I'm, I'm not I, I'm not imitating my father in heaven you know what John most days I don't even want to be like him and if that's you then just again confess that to the Lord and say Lord change my heart change my life if you need to talk to somebody go to the care and prayer room we'd love to talk to you about your relationship with the Lord, and how you can become more like Him. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would, by the power of your Spirit, make us like our Heavenly Father so that the world sees that we love one another, that we're kind to one another, that we forgive one another, and they say, man, I want to be part of that. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.